to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, they've done it again. The two great leaders of New York, both the city and the state, and my favorite examples of how not to run either. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo and New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio have just announced how they are leading their constituents into further disaster by telling New Yorkers that another full COVID-19 shutdown is probably on the way. De Blasio put it this way. He said, quote, at the current rate we are going, you have to be ready now for a full shutdown, a pause like we had back at the end of the spring. We should prepare for the possibility of a full shutdown. I agree with that, unquote. And Cuomo told New Yorkers that they should be happy. You should be happy, he said, because if we don't change the trajectory, we're going to shut down and then your business is going to close. That, my friends, is a real problem. Worry about that, because that is a real worry. Deaths are a worry, and the shutdown of the economy are the real worries, and they're viable worries, unquote. Did you understand that? I didn't. What was he trying to say? But his dictate will still be the law of the state if he decides to do it, with or without logic or science or just plain common sense. The two of them made this comment at just about the same time as the first New Yorker, critical care nurse Sandra Lindsay, received the first coronavirus vaccine in New York. And, by the way, she was the first in the country to receive the vaccine. This was on Monday, December 14th, and guess who was right there to grab the spotlight? It wasn't about Lindsay. Oh, no. As usual, it was all about Cuomo. Hey, wait. Do you remember when Cuomo said that he didn't trust the vaccine as long as Trump was president? Less than two months ago, in an interview with Good Morning America, he threatened to withhold a COVID-19 vaccine from New York until his team of doctors said it was safe because he didn't trust the FDA or CDC. And he certainly didn't trust Donald Trump. And then last month, he said he was ready to bring a legal action against the Trump administration because he said that the president's plan would not distribute the vaccine equally to lower income and black and brown New Yorkers. And in addition to that, he said that the Trump administration's plan to distribute the vaccines through private companies, he was referring, I guess, to UPS and FedEx, who have, from all accounts, done an extraordinary job so far. He said that would mean that lower-income people, and particularly people of color, would not have the same access to a vaccine. I have no idea where he got that idea from. He went on to say, quote, if the Trump administration does not change this plan and does not provide an equitable vaccine process, we will enforce our legal rights. We will bring legal action to protect New Yorkers. Unquote. Yet on Monday of this week, New Yorkers were among the very first to receive the first doses of the vaccine in the country. 
Now shipments are on the way to all 50 states. You know, Andrew Cuomo is the worst kind of hypocrite. He's the one whose executive order sent infected COVID-19 patients into nursing homes where thousands of elderly people who had been free from the virus then contracted it because they were trapped there and they couldn't leave. And many of them, thousands of them, died. When he was asked about it at one of his daily news conferences, he denied even knowing about the order, the one that he wrote and signed. So what will a new shutdown mean for New York? Well, as Cuomo told New Yorkers, your business is going to close. He might also have said, quote, your children are going to starve. You won't be able to pay your rent, so you'll be evicted. But never mind, it's all for the common good. And it doesn't matter what color your skin is, we will beat you down equally, without any discrimination on the basis of race. We'll beat this virus, even if we have to put you out on the street in the middle of winter, at Christmas time, just to make the point that I'm one terrific governor with a hell of a lot of power. And what I say goes. Well, of course, I just made that up. He didn't actually say it. But, you know, there is something basically evil about someone who forces other people to bend to his power, regardless of how it will hurt them to do so. Governor Cuomo and Bill de Blasio are two power-hungry, greedy despots who deserve each other. But I think they should beat it out on a desert island somewhere where they can't hurt anybody else. Well, my friends, we are standing at a pivotal point in our history. Cuomo and de Blasio are symptoms of a much greater and a more terrible cancer in our society than we have ever faced before. It's a cancer that is spreading so rapidly and has infected the Democrat Party maybe to the point of no return. The corruption that we saw during our last election was so horrendous and so obvious that we need to call it what it was. It was treasonous fraud that challenged our Constitution and threatened to destroy our national way of life. Our nation is teetering on the point of a knife's edge, and we could fall either way. If we fall one way, then the president will have another term, and we could look forward to another four years of prosperity. But if we fall the other way, and Joe Biden wins the greatest theft in history, then our country may never recover from the damage that will be done over the next four years. We're going to talk a lot about this later on in the show. But first, let's take a look at some of the other stories that are going on in the news right now. Attorney General Bill Barr resigned on Monday. It wasn't a complete surprise because he was coming under a lot of fire for not having completed the investigations of the deep state months ago. We had a lot of faith in him at the beginning, and we thought he would live up to the expectations we had to really uncover all the crimes that were committed by the deep state against the president. But like other appointees of the Trump presidency, Barr let the president down big time. Then also on Monday, the Electoral College voted. And if you add up the numbers, 
it appears that Biden has enough votes to be the president-elect. But that isn't the end of the story. So you need to stay tuned to the news every single day because every day new things are happening. And some of what is going on in the lawsuits and in the courts and in the Congress and in the states where votes are still being recounted and investigations are still being carried out, there's a lot happening that could still change the outcome. The intoxication of political greed is so powerful that even though the facts are clear and even though the evidence is undeniable and there is so much of it, still the left refuses to even acknowledge the possibility that there was fraud and that the election was stolen. We believe otherwise and the evidence seems overwhelmingly conclusive that through fraud, And through illegal activities, the 2020 election was most definitely stolen. The most recent example of how this happened came from an investigation into the voting machines in Antrim County, Michigan, where forensic investigators examined 22 Dominion voting machines and found that they had been programmed to cause an astronomically high number of ballot errors, over 68%. You know, the the FEC does not permit systems to have a ballot error rate of more than 0.0008%, and this was 68%. And in addition... They found that there was no audit trail that would explain how the ballots were then manually or automatically adjudicated by election officials. So we don't know what happened to those ballots after they were removed from the machines as errors. The audit logs for 2020 are simply missing. Thomas Sowell once wrote, The whole political vision of the left including socialism and communism, has failed by virtually every empirical test in countries all around the world. But this has only led leftist intellectuals to evade and denigrate empirical evidence, unquote. In other words, since the left cannot find an example where socialism has succeeded in other countries, using the facts of history as their guide, Then they rewrite history to fit their narrative. And that is exactly what they're doing now, rewriting the history of the 2020 elections, even though empirical evidence clearly shows the truth. The right and left, the conservatives and the progressives, are today locked in a mighty battle of visions. The vision of the right, the vision of the president and the tens of millions of Americans who support him, is one based on the philosophy on which the Constitution was crafted, based on law, personal responsibility, and a concept of fairness that intended to treat all people equally under the law. Like any other work of human effort, the Constitution was flawed. It was flawed by the mores and customs of the times. It was what people believed back then. It did not, in its original form, include an end to the immorality, the savagery of slavery, or give women the same rights as men. 
but it was a huge step forward from what existed elsewhere in the world at that time because it limited the government and it made it responsible to the people who elected it and not the other way around. The citizens on the right love what the Constitution stands for and are ready to defend it. And when they come to demonstrate in support of Trump and in support of the Constitution, they are largely peaceful and respectful because that is what the Constitution demands from them. They believe that the Constitution was meant to guide their lives in a free republic, and they take those laws that it sets down very seriously. On the other hand, the vision of the left is different. It suggests that the Constitution is old news, and it doesn't apply anymore as it was written. And although they give lip service to it, as when they take the oath of office, they're now flirting with socialism, Marxism, statism, globalism, and above all, the power politics that demands winning at all costs. And in the name of equality, they stand behind groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa and Democratic Socialists of America and so forth, allowing them to riot and vandalize. They support efforts to defund the police and watch as the violence turns against their own constituents. The left is split between the power brokers like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the mobs that have destroyed whole neighborhoods and the dreams of thousands of Americans who once lived and worked there before the riots. And they don't care if the election was rigged or if the votes were switched or lost or forged so long as they win. This is the battle that we're now fighting. And if we love this country and the values on which it was founded, well, we must fight to preserve it for our children and for their children. Otherwise, our nation will rot from within and wither, and the dreams of our founding fathers will die. Benjamin Franklin once told a woman who asked what kind of government they had just created. He said, A republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. And here we are at the precipice. Our nation, the United States of America, is at the brink. And the big question is, can we keep it? We've been talking a lot about the China virus and the president's efforts to get a vaccine out to the public as quickly as possible. And it's here, as I mentioned earlier. The first vaccines developed by Pfizer were given to the first patients on Monday, December 14th. This was an amazing feat, and President Trump, not surprisingly, isn't getting nearly enough credit for it. Of course, the mainstream media are generally ignoring it or mentioning it as little as possible. But when the president first said that Project Warp Speed would get the vaccine within a year, the talking heads on the left called him all kinds of names. The most common one was Liar. They said it would take a miracle to have a vaccine in a year. The truth is, it usually takes four or five years to develop a vaccine or a therapeutic medicine. And the reason for that is the rigid set of hoops that the CDC and the FDA make manufacturers jump through 
when they're developing a single drug. But Trump saw a way to cut through the red tape and deliver the drugs in record time. The goal was to save lives, and he's done it. Two companies came through in less than a year. Pfizer's vaccine is already out, and Moderna hopes to have their vaccine approved on the 17th, and it will then be on its way to medical centers immediately. If you want to call this a miracle, it's okay with me. The president cut through the red tape and did what was necessary to get this done. And like all the other promises he's made and kept, he's kept this one too. Bravo, Mr. President, and thank you. Now it's time for a short break, but I'll be right back with my guest for today and some very interesting conversation. I'm Alana Friedman, and you're listening to The Friedman Report. My fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. Well, AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world, featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. Join us, we're in this together, and we consider you part of our family in our crusade to share the news, commentary, and agenda that can lead America back again. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. The clash of visions between the Republicans and the Democrats, the right and the left, the conservatives and the liberals, is literally tearing this country apart. What used to be a matter of disagreement between people who are ready to discuss their differences is now open conflict between people who can't talk to each other at all. The peaceful political demonstrations have now turned into riots and armed conflict on our city streets. There doesn't seem to be any room for civil discourse between the left and the right anymore. I'm pleased to have a guest on the show today who will join me in a conversation about what has happened to our country and what is happening now after the sides stopped talking. I'd like to introduce my guest today, a man who likes to call himself just a citizen, a businessman for years, 
He follows the events closely, and he doesn't let the media cloud his judgment with false narratives. He's well-informed, and he has an educated opinion about what is happening in this country today. So I've invited him to join me and to discuss what is undoubtedly the most important issue facing America today. My guest today is Ernie Rudolph. Welcome, Ernie, to the Friedman Report. Thanks for having me. Ernie, let's start with some of the basics. We had an election. When we went to bed on election night, November 3rd, 2020, Trump was sailing into re-election with a comfortable lead on Joe Biden. But when we woke up on the morning of November 4th, that lead was all gone, and it was Biden who was incredibly way ahead with the numbers that made no sense at all. Ernie, what do you make of all that? I think that's a good place to start. Remember that prior to the election, we heard regularly through the mainstream media and through the Democrat leadership that on election night, it would look like the president had won, but when we got done counting, he would have lost. That was a very common theme throughout. What we saw was unlike any other election in my lifetime, and I'm over 70, so I've seen a lot of them. The stopping of counting in key states has never been done before. The fact that there were large numbers of ballots injected in tranches in very short order of time, all or mostly for Joe Biden, has never happened before. And the mainstream media is quick to point out that there is no fraud. And they've said, there is no fraud, there is no fraud. This is the will of the people, they've spoken. In analyzing the ballots and the results, we find that down ballot, Republicans did very, very well, despite polls to say that they would not. We find that Joe Biden received less votes than Hillary Clinton in 19,000 plus cities across the country. But in four to six cities, he received more votes than Barack Obama. And oh, by the way, each of those cities were cities in swing states where they stopped counting at night. Now, the people that are telling me that there is no fraud, let me just let me just start there, are the same people who spent years telling me Russia, 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 which was a non-entity. They're the same people who told me that President Trump should be impeached for talking, for asking Ukraine about what Joe Biden did, and at the same time hiding the fact that Joe Biden's son, and by implication Joe Biden, were deeply involved in corruption in Ukraine. So excuse me if I don't just accept their narrative on the fact that there's no election fraud. Lynn Wood made an interesting statement. He said, people who have nothing to hide, hide nothing. And that's true. And yet every attempt that's been made to look at the data has been blocked as much as possible. We have a sheriff in Michigan who had a complaint about election fraud in his county. And he went to get the election records, which by federal law have to be preserved for 22 months. He went to get them and found that the governor had issued an order 
for the election records to be destroyed. He had to go to court to try and stop that. That's one case. We have a situation in Antrim County, Michigan, where on election night, there was a, an obvious error in numbers, which were because uh, Joe Biden received 6,000 votes more than Donald Trump in a county that was reliably Republican and had gone for Trump very high. When they looked at the numbers, they said, oh, well, it was a human error. However, an attorney and a citizen sued to get access to the Dominion voting machines and look at them forensically. And a judge authorized that last week, and they were given access to the machines last Monday. However, the Secretary of State of Michigan and the Attorney General sued to keep the results gagged. Why would they do that? If we have an honest election, wouldn't they want people to know that the results were honest and there was no problem? Frankly, I think if you have results from any of these that prove there is no fraud, we should know it. And in this case, the judge allowed that information out. And it turns out that where law allows for less than 1% adjudication rate, they were adjudicating 68%. So they're so far out of the realm of reliable, actual information as to be totally useless. So the question I have, Ernie, is this. How does what happened in Antrim, Michigan, impact what is going on in the other swing states? Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada. The finding that 22 Dominion voting machines in Antrim County were rigged and by what amount is a huge, huge issue. 68% error rating. That is unbelievable. Will this be allowed to open the door to forensic audits on the other Dominion voting machines in other states? And how do you think this could affect the outcome? Well, there's, there's two potential options. One, we have had very little success in the courts. And I don't know why. I'm not an attorney. Uh, there's been an awful lot of, you don't have standing, uh, you're too late, uh, nobody's been injured, we don't really accept what you're doing from an evidence standpoint. One of the things that seems to be common is that nobody has accepted the evidence, being the evidence, uh, the affidavits, the records, uh, the analysis, and so forth, has never gone to court. So People say, well, you lost 50 times or you lost 60 times, whatever the number is. But that's without anybody looking at the evidence. I don't know why they're not looking at the evidence. I can't answer that. I can't answer that. I believe, personally, that what happened in Antrim County most likely happened in other places. I believe that we should have all the voting machines impounded and checked forensically. We spend billions of dollars on garbage, this would be a worthwhile investment of federal money to ensure that our election was fair and equitable and done in a way that people would say, yes, it was a fair election. It came out the way it should. We have a hundred million people in this country who are saying, we don't think it was a fair election. I think we have to prove it was fair or it was not in order to regain the confidence of the people. 
I think you have gotten to a very important point, Ernie. If the American people cannot be confident that the elections that they participate in are fair and that their vote will count, then their belief in the entire system of American democracy will be crushed because the elections in which we choose who will govern us are at the core of what America is all about. This is a very strange situation that we're in. You opened by saying Republicans versus Democrats. This is not that. It's not conservatives versus liberal. This is freedom versus tyranny. There you go. There is no doubt that on the freedom side, there are many, many citizens. And there is no doubt that on the tyranny side, there are many, many politicians. And on both sides, there are people from all parties. We know that in Washington, bipartisanship means they're all going to spend more money. We know that. <laughs> we know that the bureaucracy is the largest lobbyist of all. And I, and I say that because every time an elected representative wants information about a department or what, they go to the department to ask them. And the department's answer is we need more money. Bureaucracy is 180 degrees opposed to the taxpayer because the only way they can move ahead in their career is to have bigger budgets and more people reporting to them. And that means bigger government. And taxpayers are wanting smaller government. So we have, we have this constant tension between the government and the people. Okay? Yeah. One of the problems that we have is that there has been fraud in election for years. Uh, I was sitting in my office and I looked over at the bookcase and here's a book. It's called the title of the book is Stealing Elections by John Fund. And John Fund was a, uh, a writer for the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, website. This book was copyrighted in 2004 and updated in 2008. Wow. We're talking 16 years ago. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and he, he refers to uh, the Florida recount, but he also talks about things like the Washington state governor's election in 2004. And you may recall that where uh, I think it's Christine Gregoire, don't quote me on that, was elected, but only after three or four recounts. And every time she lost, and they'd say, well, we got to count again. We got to count again. We go, oh, we found ballots. We got to count again. Yeah, yeah. And on the third time, I think, they found enough to make her win. And then the Secretary of State said, okay, that's it. She won. And that was the end of it. Well, that's the same thing that happened with Al Franken in Minnesota. Well, we don't, you know, he lost. He lost. He lost. Oh, wait a minute. We just found a whole pile of ballots, 300, 400 in, a, in the trunk of a car that should have been counted. We'll, we'll count those. Oh, he won. Interestingly enough, when that count took place, those ballots that were found didn't change anybody else's votes. He was <laughs> running at the same time as Obama. It didn't change any of Obama's votes. It just changed his. We see the same thing in this election where the only person whose votes were changed uh, on the Republican side were Trump. It was Trump and Biden. It didn't affect anybody down ballot. That doesn't make sense. There's no logic in that. In one city in Michigan, 
At four o'clock in the morning, they sent everybody home, and three vehicles came loaded with uh, 138,000 ballots, all for Biden. Right. How does that happen? The interesting thing is, not just Michigan, Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta, I don't know if Milwaukee, they all stopped counting and they all sent people home and said, we're not counting now, we'll start up again in the morning. That has never happened in an election, never. And it didn't happen then, Ernie. Well, they sent people home and then and they then continued they, to count. Exactly. And so and so when when we see those things and use common sense, what's the old saying? Are you going to believe what I tell you or your lion eyes? And my lion eyes. My say, lion eyes every better, time. We, every time. Let's take this a step further. Now, let's assume, as you and I both believe, that this election was carried out in a fraudulent manner, a very fraudulent manner, right. in, 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 at least in these six states and maybe in others as well, everywhere where there was a Dominion uh, machine. The question yes. that The question that I have now is this, Ernie. There are two options. The first is that all the efforts of the Trump campaign to verify the election results will succeed and he will be reelected for another four-year term in the White House. That's one option. The other is that his efforts will not succeed and Joe Biden will be confirmed as the president-elect, giving validity to all the fraud and corruption that skewed the results of this election. So my question to you is this, given either of these outcomes, what do you think will happen then? I know that if President Trump is inaugurated or declared the winner, that the uh, brown shirt leftist goons will take to the streets again. Yes, I, I agree. know that. I agree. And with the support of leftist mayors who tell their police to stand back and stand down. However, I think in that case, the president would take military action to restore order. You're talking about before January 20th, right? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Because he's still president. The other thing, and you didn't mention this third option, and that is that this Friday, the director of national intelligence is to report to the president on the election and whether or not there's foreign interference. There is a stunning amount of information related to foreign interference in this election, including the fact that there are strong indications that the Dominion voting machines were connected to the internet and that their records were sent overseas for adjudication. The machines were designed for all intents and purposes to facilitate fraud. Uh, The forensic analysis that was done in Antrim County makes that claim. Sidney Powell has made that claim with some of her witnesses who have signed affidavits. And uh, so there's significant information there. One of the things that the attorney the attorney who was handling Antrim County, when the judge said, I have to have a hearing to release the information, his claim when he went forward was, I need this to be able to release it to the American people and to the DNI, Director of National yes. Intelligence. So there's clearly a, uh, a link there in terms of making sure that that information is preserved 
and is reported. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't know what will happen then, but I think that that uh, certainly could be a game changer and, and something we all should be watching for, something that could be startling. <laughs> there, are, there are those who say you won't believe what comes out of this. And I, I mean, I've heard rumors of uh, CIA interference. I've heard rumors of uh, discussion of uh, Venezuela, China, Iran, all having access to these machines. I, I mean, talk about foreign interference. This is nuts. If it's proven, then then we have a then we have a real uh, a real serious problem, and uh, and I think the president would be well within his uh, powers and his responsibilities to the Constitution to halt the election. I'm going to interrupt you at this critical juncture because we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will continue and we will cover even more of this very interesting and critical subject. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? The good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot slash sleep. Just before the break, we were talking about what would happen under different outcomes of the 2020 elections. And you had just said that it would be within the president's responsibility to halt this election process. What other remedies might there be to straighten out this mess? The Congress certainly has that capability and could, on January 6th, read the votes for Donald Trump and in those states that are in dispute, select the Donald Trump elector votes rather than the Biden elector votes, and he would be elected the winner. What are the chances that that would be allowed to happen? Well, allowed to happen if, if we find that there's massive fraud and if there's massive foreign interference in the election and no one can prove that the, that the votes are legitimate, and, and frankly, we haven't found anybody. Nobody said they're legitimate. No, they say it, but nobody's given evidence of that. They've said, oh, yeah, that's the way it is. If people have spoken, shut up and get away. And that's it's like, it. well, show me the paper. Show me the signatures. Show me where we are. And none of that's happened. So it's a very, very interesting challenge. There's a backstory in this, Ilana, that I don't think people understand. And this is one that I didn't know about until a couple of years ago. In 1982, there was a case in New Jersey where Republicans were accused of suppressing the vote. The practice was called caging. And as I understand it, that means if you are uh, a secretary of state or a county auditor 
and you send letters to registered voters and the letter comes back, change of address, address unknown, the party was saying, well, that person's no longer a registered voter here, take them off the rolls. So a returned mail would take them off the voter rolls. Now a person might still be a valid voter just at a different address. We don't know that, right? But this was this was done uh, apparently and it went to court. And in a federal court, the Republican Party signed a consent decree not to do things that would be considered suppression of the vote. And this is this is something that yeah, I never knew that. That was 1982. Now, what was the uh, outcome of that uh, decision? Well, what happened was, for the next many years, Democrats were cheating, known to be cheating, and Republicans could do nothing about it because every time they raised any issue, they were accused of trying to suppress the vote and therefore in violation of the consent decree. And frankly, they were gun-shy. So from 1982 on, no one questioned these absentee ballot practices, stuffing ballot boxes. We know it happened because we've had cases where people have been convicted of it. In Philadelphia, one of the, one of the judges of election went to jail because he was being paid to stuff the ballot box. This was within the last year and a half, two years. The consent decree was vacated in December of 2018 or 19. Yeah. So that went on for 36 years. Who knew? I don't think most people have ever heard this story. No, I know they haven't. And most, and, and that's what I said. I didn't know about it. And so this election is the first presidential election that has been held since the consent decree ended. So this is the first time that Republicans have been free to question some of these practices. And I think that was a problem for the Democrats and, and good for the people. But, but, over, but over that 30 plus year period, uh, they had a lot of practice of cheating. So over these years, the Democrats have been able to hone their skills and refine their approach to voting so that they can manipulate the votes according to who the candidate is and what they want to accomplish in a particular election. These voting machines can apparently be programmed to do anything that the programmer wants them to do, including flipping votes, creating errors, and so forth, regardless of how people actually vote. And what, in the end, this means is that your vote, my vote, means nothing. Because without our ever knowing, our vote can disappear, flip to another candidate, or be fractionized to be worth more or less than one whole vote, depending on whom we have actually voted for. Yes, and and not just programmed, but uh, but it's a feature of the machines that you can set in their manuals. They explain how you can set the vote so that one one person uh, a vote for that person counts as eighty percent, and a vote for the other person counts as one hundred and twenty percent. Exactly, and it's like that's the end of one person, one vote. So how do you 
how do you do that? And and so this is not a this is not a problem. This is a feature of the machine. Well, that that's you a know. problem. And so. Uh, <laughs> That, well, yes. you know, that's that's the problem for all of us because we we no longer can count on the fact that our votes count for anything. Why bother? That's exactly right. Sidney Powell has made the comment that if we don't correct this now and get to the bottom of it nationally and stop this, we will never have a fair election again, and it'll be over. That doesn't mean you'll never elect a Republican. What it means is you'll never elect a Donald Trump. You'll never elect somebody that cares about the country and the people rather than about themselves. And you'll never be able to vote for someone or have the opportunity to vote for someone who is outside the system, who isn't part of the political system that is so corrupt that it has brought us to this point. That's correct. Now, let's get back to a question that I asked a while ago. I was talking about what would happen if Donald Trump was elected in the end, and you suggested that the brown shirts would take to the streets again to riot and cause mayhem. And they would be supported by the political leaders, the liberal, even socialist mayors and governors who allow them to destroy whole neighborhoods and the lives and livelihoods of the people who live there. But let's turn that around. What do you think will happen if Donald Trump loses his bid for a second term because of the fraud and criminal activity of the Democrats. Will the Republicans come out and demonstrate and riot on the streets and tear up their cities the way the Democrats have? The way Black Lives Matter and Antifa have? What will they do? I don't see a conservative, violent reaction. But for your listeners who have read Atlas Shrugged, I see a John Galt moment. I wasn't thinking about, I wasn't thinking about uh, John Galt creating another, another place. What I, what I was thinking about was the, uh, the resistance by pulling back. In other words, yes, I can, I can do this, but I'm not going to, why should I? And so all of a sudden the wheels come off the economy in ways that they can't be corrected because what, what the left has never understood, they've never understood it, is that business success comes from risk-taking and judgment and experience, not from academia. Uh, so because you have a PhD or an MBA doesn't make you a great business person. What it does is it makes you someone who's been indoctrinated and trained in some areas, but not necessarily a great business person. That requires judgment, experience, risk-taking. Uh, I can relate to my own, uh, my own experience. I would, I would make a decision, and, and some of my management team would be horrified. They'd say, well, that's so risky. I'd say, well, no, you view it as risky. I don't, because I see the risk differently. Okay, and that and that is a, that is something the bureaucrats cannot do. That's why we have schools making the ridiculous decisions that they do about a child tearing a piece of bread to look like a gun and saying, "Oh, that's a gun. You got to be suspended." Uh, come on, there's no common sense associated with that. What you have 
is a society, a bureaucratic society that says, you must write rules that I can follow because I can't make a judgment. That's really what's happened. Right. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're off the politics for a moment, but it really does relate. If I, if I look at what happens to uh, entrepreneurial companies, and I, I use Apple as an example, um, Steve Jobs and, uh, and uh, Wozniak started that company in a garage. They, they were very creative, came out with great uh, ideas and, and left, left the company. And the company was doing very well. They left and all of a sudden it's in decline. Uh, they brought Steve Jobs back as CEO. Yep. And all of a sudden Apple was booming again and doing very, very well. Uh, he was not a person that people necessarily liked as a friend, but he was creative and capable and had a vision and an ability to take the right kinds of risks to get things done. When he died and the new CEO, Tim Cook, took over, you can see in the things that are happening that there isn't the same creative spark. Still a yeah. good company, doing well, moving forward, but not the same creative spark. Yeah. And I can point to other companies. When uh, Tom Watson Sr. Uh, started IBM, he provided the intellectual capacity, the spark, the creativity to make that company what it was. And over the last umpteen years, uh, we've seen the company, still a big company, still a good company, but in, but in decline in terms of its creative spark. My contention is that when the entrepreneur leaves and the professional managers take over, that the professional managers are by nature risk averse. They yes, will absolutely. tell you they take risk. Yeah. They'll tell you how they analyze the risk, but their analysis is book learning. It's not gut. That is the major problem with these entrepreneurs, so-called, who leave these universities and they have all this book learning, but they have no, they don't have that spark of ingenuity that comes, that, that is the real driver behind successful companies. Right. And some, some do and they become successful. The way that plays into the political arena is that we don't teach and you cannot teach that creative spark. You can nurture it through your education system, but we don't. You can, you can help to develop it, but I don't think we do. But if you grow a group of people who are risk averse and live by the rules and very risk averse, they gravitate toward government. And then they think because they're high powered government executives that they can decide how everybody should live their life. And that's a formula for disaster. But there is such a thing as ingenuity and creativity in government. We've seen an example of it, a really good example of it, over the last four years. It's about the outsider who comes to the company, or in this case the government, with fresh eyes. Donald Trump was the outsider, and he brought a fresh perspective to the presidency. 
He wasn't a politician. He was a businessman. And although he lacked the polish that generations of politics will give a guy, he brought a fresh point of view, untainted by politics, to the Oval Office. He wasn't constrained by years of bureaucracy that tied his hands and dulled his brain. Instead, he brought solutions to the office that no one had thought possible. Take one example, what he did in the Middle East. Decades of attempts to create peace between Israel and her Arab neighbors came to nothing because it was always the same old formula that was dragged out to the table by a succession of American presidents, and it never worked. But Donald Trump took a different approach. First of all, he treated Israel like a sovereign nation worthy of respect and not like a stepchild who needed to be alternately coddled and punished in order to line up with U.S. foreign policy. And then he didn't drag out the old two-state solution that never ended in an agreement that lasted because our foreign policy never understood the recalcitrance of the Palestinian leaders. They would just rather walk away from the table than make peace with Israel, and they would never agree to a two-state solution. So after a brief time of trying, Trump came up with a new solution that had nothing to do with the two-state solution. He negotiated agreements between Israel and several Muslim countries in the region. First came the United Arab Emirates, then Bahrain, then Sudan and Morocco, and more to come. In less than a few months, this is already working. Since the first agreement, economic relations between Israel and several of her Muslim neighbors have already borne the fruit of success, tourism, new business ventures, and trade. These are the first fruits of these agreements, and the future is bright that these first agreements will lead to others and a new stability and hope for a lasting peace in the region. And it was all because Donald Trump refused to be bound by an old formula that never worked, but applied ingenuity and took a novel approach to an old problem that his series of predecessors could never solve. Getting back to American politics, I have a question for you. When I invited you to the show, you said you were optimistic. Tell me why. Yeah, one thing, one thing that I hold on to is God's promise in Genesis 12, 3. And he's talking to Israel and he says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I, and I think about President Donald Trump has blessed Israel more than any president in my lifetime. So I'm optimistic. I still don't think that Trump is going to be out of the presidency. I think he will be inaugurated in January. And I think it's because despite the suppression of news in the mainstream media, there are 100 million, as I said, 100 million people that think the election was fraudulent. And I think that there is no way to stop that information from coming out. Well, from your mouth to God's ear. I hope you're right because <laughs> because I hope you're right because the future of this country depends on it. Ernie, I want to thank you very very much for joining me today. This has really been a wonderful conversation. So thank you very very much for joining me today. Well, thank you all, and uh, best of luck as you go forward. And I and I will be interested to see how things turn out. But I'm an optimistic person anyway. So. 
We can all learn a lot from that. Thank you so much, Ernie. Well, we're out of time. Thank you for spending this hour with us. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report. Thank you.